are a W-2 capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W-2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helms. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Jay Helms, founder of the podcast and movement known as the W-2 Capitalist. Today, I am joined by Mr. Ferris Musa. Ferris is an entrepreneur at heart with a tech background. That's something he and I have in common. I don't know that we could share that during the pre-notes, but I actually have a computer science degree as well. I didn't do with it what you've done with yours, but uh, by that I mean Ferris graduated from the University of Texas with a computer science degree and worked for Microsoft straight from college. Tell you a little bit how smart this guy is. Ferris, you guys pay attention to this. Ferris later quit Microsoft to bring tech to the industries that lack it, where he later found his passion in real estate. Ferris quickly built a portfolio of rentals, completing nine closing in his first 12 months. That's pretty incredible, Ferris. Uh, after seeing the results of rentals, Ferris later decided to scale up into apartment complexes where he met Ben and started Disrupt Equity, a company focused on multifamily acquisition and investments for investors, and in doing so, helped leverage his strengths in tech to better identify quality investments for his investors. Ferris has helped raise millions of dollars for multifamily syndications. Ferris, welcome to the show, man. Glad you are oh, here. Thanks, thanks for having me, Jay. I'm glad to be part of the movement and glad to tell everyone how important having a computer science degree is to uh, get <laughs> right? So clearly, so, it's the, the right progression. So, Well, it's funny. There's a, there's a guy in my mastermind. He's an engineer. Uh, I don't label myself as an engineer now. Now, when I graduated college, I probably did. Uh, but I've been in the sales and uh, in the sales force for a while. And but he posted this uh, message the other night uh, about how many real estate investors are engineers, and it was like, I mean, it blew up. It was a trending topic on, on Bigger Pockets, which is where you and I met and uh, or were introduced. I think somebody introduced me uh, through that, and and, and uh, I was like, this guy left Microsoft. I got to talk to him, right? I got to talk to him. And you were mentioning before the show that was over ten years ago. That was about 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, almost actually, yeah. so oh, what, I guess nine years ago, I said 10, I was wrong. If it was nine years ago. Uh, we won't hold you. We won't yeah. hold the feet to the fire. No, but, small but you're right. <laughs> Lots of engineers. Cause I mean, I mean, fundamentally real estate is a numbers game. It's a people's game and it's a numbers game. And I think, you know, engineers tend to understand the numbers a little bit more comfortably than other people yeah. do. Yeah. And so I think that's probably why, you know, people that come from engineering backgrounds tend to like it. And so, yes. Yeah. Uh, so let me, I am fresh off my W-2 career, right? So I, I am a product of COVID-19 layoffs. Mm -hmm. uh, I have vowed to never go back due to uh, my focus on real estate investing. So it's fresh on my mind of leaving the W-2 world and focus real estate investing on full time. But 10 years ago, you, you left on your own, right? I'm still yeah. a little sour. Like I hate to lose uh, more than I like to win kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and I'm still a little sour that somebody else got to keep their job and I didn't. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get over it eventually when I, when I follow your lead and make millions and millions of dollars in real estate, which I would not at the W2. Same for you, right? Is you saw that kind of writing on the wall and started going after it. But what led up to that decision and how hard was it? If you can remember back that nine, 10 years ago to say, all right, I'm done with the W2 world. I'm going to go into real estate full time. 
No, I mean, so that's a great question. So leaving your, your job, right, your WT job is never a comfortable thing, right? And so for me, I left to actually, you know, I, my story is really crazy. So I mean, high school, I had my own little web company. And whenever Microsoft was almost an accident, and I told myself three years and I'm out. So I waited three and a half years and I did leave. And it wasn't to get into real estate, it was actually start a software company. So that was even like more of a gusto kind of thing because I didn't really have much clarity, right? With real estate, at least if there's a little bit of clarity, if I buy these things, I know they'll cash flow this much. Whereas in my case, you know, it was me and a friend and just kind of did it on a dream originally, right? And so learned a lot about business for those next several years and then kind of, you know, had extra cash flow of looking to invest. And really, I had learned a lot about the stock market, you know, for the past 15 years that started that in high school. I knew I wanted something, you know, diversify a little better. And so I read, at the time I read uh, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, which is a great book. I highly recommend it because it talks about like the fundamentals of real estate. And then from that, really learned a lot, listened to a lot of podcasts and hopped in and figured it out. And so, you know, and, and I, it's funny you mentioned about leaving your job because really the same exact thing kind of came up just the other day talking to someone on our team who we made an offer to and got him to leave his cushy job, right? And, you know, some of that is understanding, you know, the path, right? And so that's for those of your listeners out there that might have gotten, you know, COVID layoff for, you know, such as yourself or anyone else, man, sometimes it's a blessing disguise. And I'll give you even another example. We were doing a huge deal during, you know, right before COVID blew up and, you know, it just the whole COVID thing happened and we had to change everything. And yeah, at the time it's like, oh man, this is going to suck the next couple of months. You know, there's a lot of fear, but really it's been kind of a blessing because I've been able to double down and build up other systems, other companies, other entities that we've been wanting to do. And so you got to kind of look at the positive. It's like, yeah, maybe we lost a little bit on the short term, but on the long term, I mean, it's setting up for a totally different trajectory. So, yeah, I love that you see that. I think a lot of companies, including the one, this is going to be a, this is going to be a nasty dig, but I, I think the companies that laid off people, they are very short-sighted. They're not in it for the long game. I, I love that you're doubling down. You see the opportunity is to build that foundation and come out of, you know, what a lot of people are, are predicting is a recession or, or even depression uh, and skyrocket to the next level. So, yeah, I, and, you know, and, yeah and, and it's not that we think it's going to be roses for the next six months or a year. Right. right. You know, it's unknown. The problem is that's the decision. We don't know. But for us, it's okay. There's a problem. Here are the solutions yeah. towards it. What else can we do to get more resilient? Yeah. So for us, we're diversifying. We're building out other sister businesses. And it's giving us that opportunity to just kind of put the brakes on some things and focus on other things. And so for your listeners, same thing, man, you know, you might be pent up at the house because you can't leave under quarantine, (laughs) go out, read a book, listen to podcasts such as this, learn all you can bask in that. And then once you get out of it, figure out how to act on it, right. And make steps towards that. And so I think there's a million ways to get involved with real estate. I tell people I love real estate because it's a numbers game and it's a people's game. So, you know, find people, get to know people and really figure out way, you know, people that are doing what you want to do and how do you start to maybe partner and do things together. Yeah. And you say it's a numbers game and we were chatting before about how there's an overwhelming amount of investors who are engineers and why we, why we we get that kind of, um, I don't know, math comes real easy, but for some of those engineers, the people aspect of the business doesn't come as easy, right? So then you have to rely on a partner who does, right? And you're, you seem to be one of those guys uh, that has the ability to, to not only talk to people, but also talk to engineers. Go back to the office space reference where you've got, I forget the guy's name, but he's the uh-huh. guy that, you know, you can't have 
customers talking to engineers. You can't have engineers talking to customers. You got to have Ferris, right? So, oh, no, no. I mean, it's important to understand your strengths and weaknesses, right? Yes, so, yes. I was probably lucky. So at Microsoft, I was a program manager, but I was probably the most technical, one of the more technical <laughs> windows. And, you know, because of that, I was able to talk to engineers, but also there's still that people component. And so I learned both sides of it, but I also have a partner who's also can help with the people side. And he carries his weight as well. And so for those that are out there listening, I mean, real estate is a business that is purely your success is almost rooted in the people you know i mean it really yeah. is hard as you might work knowing the right people will make leaps and bounds and so figure out what you're lacking and what others can bring to the table and you know you create one-on-one situations yeah so if you're an engineer and you're listening you're really good at underwriting and analysis and you know you have friends who can all invest that's a lot of value you're bringing go find someone that can help do more of the face or more of the talking or more of the dealing with staff right i mean working with staff is its own thing and so really you know understand your weakness and get out there and find someone to help and there's a million ways to do that so yeah absolutely and partnerships are key you know i mean i've, I've been slowly building my partnership base in the real estate community over the last couple of years and really in the last month um since i was let off i've been able to really focus on that i feel like i've made more progress in the last four weeks than i have in the last four years uh just because of you know instead of one or two hours a day it's now uh five or six hours a day of that, mm-hmm. right uh, amongst all the other stuff we have going on and i you know, I mean, yeah, get out there, you know, <laughs> tell people how to say hi, right? You, you risk yeah. nothing. You're not going to, people in real estate love to talk about real estate. I mean, that's really the name of the beast. And so very few people are going to be annoyed, you know, that you want to talk to them. But it's also, you know, understand who's busy and figure out ways to add value. I think that's also an important thing because, you know, we get approached by a lot of different people and yep. then mine's mentioned, remember another person I need to get back to. <laughs> 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 you just click. But, you know, you know, kind of come with a little bit of a plan, right? And people, you know, if you have a little bit of direction where people don't feel like, oh, this guy is just, just talking to talk, but have some direction, a plan, you know, good questions, people will appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And the partnership, so I've, I've been diving into this. Um, now that I'm focused on multifamily um, full, or real estate investing full time, I want to focus on multifamily. Right, has some success with that on the general partner and on the partner side for the last few years, and I want to be known as the guy of uh, if you if there's an apartment complex in North Florida, Jay's your guy to go talk to about it, right? And that extends from Mobile, Alabama to Jacksonville, Florida, just because I've been to Mobile and know Mobile quite quite well. Um, spent a lot of the W two time in the last twenty years over there, but one piece of the puzzle that I don't have is the capital. Right. So uh, I've been working on my investor pool, building relationships with people I don't typically know. Right. And just reaching out and saying, hey, here's my goal, whatnot, and of, of buying apartment complexes along the Gulf Coast. But you've raised millions of dollars, right, for the same different, same aspect. Right. So let, let's go here next. Number one, what does your portfolio hold today with Disrupt Equity? And number two, give us some points on, you know, if you're a passive investor, uh, what you should be looking for or listening to from uh, a syndicator. Somebody calls, wants to build a relationship with you, uh, and, you know, you may or may not know him, but you want to get to know him, but he's going to bring you a deal eventually. What are some of the things that those folks as passive investors should be looking for? Yeah, so, I mean, to your first question, 
I just blanked out. Your first question was uh, <laughs> <laughs> units in your units in your portfolio. <laughs> no, yeah, sorry. The first one. Yeah, so right now today, just right back, we've had a couple of deals go full cycle. Today we have about fifteen hundred units under management. Still, yes. that we own. You know, they're not all here in Houston, so we're based in Houston. We actually, you know, we manage one deal in Houston, but all of our stuff is throughout Texas and Atlanta. And so we, you know, we do the remote thing, we do local, we just about building the system. And so, you know, for the passive investors that are, are out there listening, it's about understanding your, your sponsor that you're talking to. What do they bring to the table? Right. I like to say that syndication is really about, it's about project management on steroids, right? How do you put these puzzle pieces? Like you said, you have a piece of the puzzle, you know, if you have a deal in Jacksonville or a deal in, you know, somewhere in Florida, I mean, Jay, I want to be the first guy you call, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we can help solve the rest of the pieces, right? You put them all together yeah. and you all accomplish something bigger, greater together. And so, you are sitting at the beach right now, right? So I am I mean, sitting just, at the beach, right? It's right here. Clear. It's like a virtual beach. <laughs> Not as nice as it looks like on video. Yeah. But I figured it's a lot more fun than my career. Yeah, or my cluttered office that you see in my background yeah, too. Yeah, so. a little bit more, <laughs> more, more genuine. So, yeah. but um, you know, for the past investors, talk to the sponsor, right? Is the sponsor transparent? I've had I've had investors approach me saying, "Hey, this sponsor gave me a teach or won't answer these questions," and I'm like, "Well," and then they're like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "Why are you even investing with them, right?" You know, as a passive investor, you're partnering with this person, and it's not a short-term partnership. I mean, you're in it for the next four, five, six, seven years, right? And so understand them, their level of transparency, understand what their goal is with the plan, right? And does that align with what your goals are? Because you might be looking to max your dollar, but you're willing to take notions for a year, but you want to try to, or you might be looking to retire and you just need cash flow, right? So making sure the business models align. And the most important thing, ask for referrals and just, you know, ask if done. And it's not to say that someone new is not capable, but you right. just have to, as a possible investor, understand the risk you're getting into and then are you, you know, are you being compensated accordingly? Yeah. And so, you know, that's, you know, going, that goes back to what the fee structure is, all of that. And so, you know, our first deal, we gave up more than the deals we do now, right? We, we, you know, we were figuring it out as well earlier on. And so, um, you know, and then maybe also just as important, who else are they partnering? Because again, point, right? Maybe someone is bringing a piece of it, but someone else can bring the experience and the, you know, that, that, that network. And so it's a team sport and, for passive investors, just understand who you're you're partnering with because you really do need to look at it as you're partnering with this person, right? Yeah. What is their communication style? Do they do monthly updates? Do they do quarterly? Do they do annually, right? You know, how else do they operate everything else? What do their updates look like? Are they, do they give full financials? I mean, we do monthly, we do full financials, we do monthly distributions, right? What, what do other people do? And it's not to say monthly is the right, quarterly is, you know, people are different. Just making sure, again, as an investor, it meets, you, it meets your style, your persona. Uh, just curious because I'm a limited partner in two different apartment complexes. One's in uh, Waxahachie, which I'm sure you know where that is, and mm -hmm. the other one's in Greenville. The operators there, one of them, one of the operators does monthly distributions. The other one does quarterly. You just mentioned you guys do monthly. What what's the biggest drawback from doing one over the other as an operator and or as from a passive investor? So people think that doing monthly is more work than doing quarterly. But that's only true until you, you grow. Once you grow, it actually becomes a burden for me to try to remember, hey, is it that third month for this deal? Because all our deals are money. Actually, it's a lot easier saying, look, we do distributions on every deal, and we just put a system in place for it, and you just know that, okay, you know, we get the financials on the 15th, right, from the property manager you know, company. Then on the 25th, we write up their things. We figure out, okay, we're going to distribute this much cash. And, you know, we send out the investor updates at the end of the month, and we also queue up the wires out to the investors. This is actually a lot easier. And so 
Um, the pros and cons for a passive investor, it's getting your money now versus, you know, cumulative in three. Right? Some people like to have that monthly. Some people just spend it if they don't get it in bigger batches. So, <laughs> yeah, that's where maybe as an investor, you want to be in a deal where they give you a for a year because you might have a tendency to spend it. So maybe it's yeah. actually better for you to not do as often. For us, I hope our investors can kind of, you know, manage that themselves. And so we like to get the money out sooner. But it's also the nice thing about an operator about doing quarterly and, you know, and this is where doing monthly you have to be cognizant of is – you have less ability for reserves, right? Because kind of, you yeah. think about it, we accumulate, 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 and then you give a big push out. Versus if you're doing monthly, you know, you're not, you have your reserves that you have on every deal, but you, you just have less buffer of reserves. And so yeah. being aware of that and, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? So. And from a, a passive investor standpoint, it really just comes down what they prefer right now. Do you, do you have some investors? Um, Cause I'm just now hit me. I've never asked this, but hey, I don't want monthly distributions. I want quarterly. Can you do you have these one offs or you, everybody kind of moving to monthly? I'm just yeah. saying to get your money even better. I mean yeah. it's, it's the value prop that we're monthly and we're we're fine enough to do monthly. So generally most investors are excited about it. Yeah. But, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I thought it I am like you, uh, or I'm like your uh, your general statement. Most people think it's more work. I was like, I was thinking it would be more work, but the way you just put that makes sense. Definitely yeah, makes it, sense. It, to me, it's easier to build a consistent system that's doing the same thing every month yeah. versus trying to, like, it just gets to a point where I'm like, man, we, you know, we, have, we have so many different deals. And I'm like, well, shoot, that, that deal, we bought it last April. And then I start counting, <laughs> you know, it becomes a burden, right? Versus just getting them all consistent. And then you just figure out how much do you have to distribute. System for every month. I like it. That's very good. From a, a, uh, oh, wow. You know how you lost, you forget my question. Like, I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, Capital, we're, we're computer science degrees. We're not memorization historian degrees. Oh right? man, just and did you ever cheat in class? I just got to ask you that. Did I ever cheat in class? Everyone cheated in some capacity. <laughs> <laughs> it's a team sport, like real estate, right? <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's like if a person took the exam before me and you ask, "Hey, is it focusing on X or Y? Is that cheating?" It's is that cheating? Is that is that still going by the rules? Yeah. Um, I, I figure out ways to operate efficiently. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> if that has ever been a political answer to that question, that there's that was it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I remember now, that was a good stall tactic. And now I remember what, uh, what I was going to ask you. What does a typical deal look like for, for you? And I, I know there's a wide range and, and don't want to get too deep in the numbers here because we are, you know, just talking, uh, it's just audio or video. If we happen to use the, the, this on the YouTube channel, but um, what does a typical deal look like for you uh, to present to yeah, your, so, your passive investors? No, so I mean, originally whenever we started, we used to do, you know, just a straight split, 80-20, right? So on all cash flow and profits, meaning not their initial investment, right? You always give that back first, but basically on everything else that we've made, we would take 20 investors and get 80%, right? We since have moved to a model where we do a preferred return in every one of our deals. And for those investors that are, are listening, it's really sounds scarier than it is. All a preferred return means. What is, is preferred? Wait a minute. You're using yeah, these big you know, words. This is not. Investors <laughs> are getting preference on their return. Yeah. And so for anyone, you know, to give a simple example, if a deal is an 8% preferred return, right? An investor puts in $100,000. That means that the investor is getting 8% annualized on their investment each year before the sponsors can get a, get a cut. 
right? So it's kind of protecting the investors, right? It's, it's, it's almost like there's like that minimum bar. So me as a sponsor, I'm very motivated to get above that 8% press because why? If I stay below the 8%, I'm not getting anything on the profits, right? And so we're doing all this work. We're not getting, you know, any of that. So we really want to get above it because then that's whenever we get the splits. And so most of our deals today, we're doing a 75-25 with an 8 pref or 70-30 with an 8 pref. And then that really that 70-30 split is, you know, 30 to us, 70 investors, and that's after the 8. And so yeah. all the money that's left over, they're still getting 70%. So I'm not even adding the 8 back in. Some people do what's called a catch-up and a clawback. For those of your passive investors, read your PPM, read the company agreement, understand the deal. Right, that, that's basically an opportunity for the sponsor to get caught up to where they match your eight. Mm-hmm. We don't do that in our deals currently. So. Yeah, and PPM is private placement memorandum, which is a document required by the SEC to file on this type of securities. Yeah. That, you know, they look at it as an investment security. You mentioned earlier too. You know, went full cycle on a couple of your deals, and you know, I think it's very important. The relationship piece is that a passive investor has to have a good relationship with the sponsor or the syndicator of the deal because you're right. You're married to that entity um, for at least four or five years. But if you're doing your job right and what you, you know, you as a syndicator, you want to raise money. What you want to do is have a good relationship so you can renew your vows in five years. Right. So you can say, Hey, we've exited this property. Here's the next one. The easiest investor is the investor you already have <laughs> yeah, yeah. versus, you know, having to get new investors every deal. Right. Yeah. And you know, the investors that you have our number one source of investors are referrals from our existing investors. Right. Nice. And so do your part, you know, don't if you're, if you want to go do your own deal, don't go aggressive on the deal. Right. And not be able to perform. I'm a big fan of, you know, under, you know, basically under promise over deliver. Right. Yeah. And it's not to say every one of our deals are perfect. Right. Every deal has its own challenges, but usually that first year is the, most painful deal because you just kind of don't know what you're getting into until you get into it. Yeah. Right? But you know, a good sponsor operator will work through it and get the thing back on track. Right. And yeah. so understand that. And you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to keep your current investors happy. Happy. Yeah. And that usually comes with, with clarity, uh, money. Right. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, both of those are two, they're two very important things. You, you definitely want to be able to, um, meet their expectations of what y'all agree to on the deal, but also clarity, right? Is yeah. building a relationship, making sure that you have, uh, you're not sidestepping any kind of conversation or anything like that. So uh, I think those two to me are, are some of the biggest things. No, making sure it's available, investors. right? Our investors yeah. know that they can ping me and, you know, I'm the one that answers. I don't have the rest of the team that answers. Most of them, yeah. you know, it's either me and my partner, right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we, that's, that's where our time is spent, best spent, Right working you know, with our investors, seeing what they're up to and vice versa. Tell- we perform, right? Like we sell a deal. Guess what? We have a lot. <laughs> our problem is we sold two deals in November and we haven't found a deal since then. And <laughs> those investors have a lot of cash sitting waiting for us to find a good deal. So how patient are they? <laughs> well, they're patient. I mean, you know, we almost had a deal, but yeah, it just, you know, you, you, they're, they're, they're pinging me, especially now with all the kind of what's happened in the market. They're like, Hey man, do you have any deals? Really want to get something deployed now. Right. Cause yeah. pricing is going to adjust down. And so trying to find the right deal. Well, on that note, where, where do you think we're going? Um, you know, this morning I did a YouTube live. I was talking about the differences between or similarities between where we were at in 2008 versus now. And if you look at some of the housing market prices, which I'm not very clear on, I need to go back and research this on how, 
single family housing market prices affect multifamily, but it's all tight. When I look at single family, I think of it, well, that's how the economy is in general is, is moving. So it goes, I can draw a gray line between that and the value of multifamily. Maybe you can add some clarity to that. But what I was looking at is the, where the unemployment spikes hit versus where pricing started to come down. Right. So, yeah. Right. I've, I've given a lot of thought to this. So you have to look at it in terms of multifamily is a cash flow business. Single family is an emotional business. It really is, right? Multifamily, you're looking for cash flow and your pricing and valuation is based on cash flow. That's number one. Number two, the thing that affects cap rates and compression or not, one of the biggest drivers is debt. But how easy is debt? So you have a 10-year sitting at like half a point, right? Debt is so unbelievably cheap right now. So that's going to continue to let people essentially overpay or pay up for an apartment or multifamily because they can get the debt so cheap, right? And so their spread, they still want to make their whatever they want to make on the spread, but it's just become lower because it's a cheaper amount. And then the third thing too to keep in mind is with COVID, I think it's kind of helped remind people why multifamily is so attractive, right? Because at the end of the day, it's really high up on Aslan's, you know, pyramid of needs, right? The government has deemed it just as important as first people need to eat, drink, and sleep. So you're up there. So the government, the stimulus money is really a way to get people, obviously, you know, a place to sleep, right? Right. So it's that important it's versus the Chili's pad site that was selling at a forecap. You know, it does not have to be in business, right? Cheesecake Factory did not pay their note or their, their rent last month, right? Across right. all their properties. And so it's a little bit of a reminder to people like, hey, in the end of the day, it's up there. It's, you know, it's an essential part of business. And so I think between that and all the money that's getting dumped into the market right now, there's going to be a large transfer of wealth because I do believe people that know how to invest their money, save their money, will continue to know how to do so. People that don't will continue not to know how to do, right? So, you know, some people will will change between the two. But what does that mean? That means all of this money is going to, over time, it's going to percolate back up and it's going to get, it's going to look for a place to get invested. And so, you know, there's just going to, there's already so much money sitting on the sidelines and there's going to be that much more over the next coming years. So I think actually in the long run, I think cap rates, I don't know or care what the next year is going to happen a year, next two years. But I think in the long run, I mean, there's just going to be so much money that's out there. And, you know, with the tenure as low as it is, debt is very, still very cheap. It's yeah. going to look to get placed in something. So, Speaking of that, you know, COVID-19, um, before I was laid off, the entire company went to work remotely. Um, you said today, was today your first day back in the office? No, we, we, me, my partner came in sporadically, but then, yeah, today we have a whole pretty much whole team was in there. Okay, I got you. But, you know, a lot of companies um, are now seeing, okay, we can be productive with remotely working employees. So speaking of the commercial space, right, so with, with restaurants and stuff, I think that'll come back. I don't know that businesses, uh, the commercial space is going to come back. Um, quite frankly, my wife and I, we looked at an apart- another apartment, uh, commercial space right down the road from us. Um, and my one hangup is a lot of folks are going to start working from home now, now that they know they can do it. And now that the companies are allowing them to do it and saying, Hey, you, you can just go from home. So I think I want to get your thoughts on what you think that's going to do to the commercial space. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, as people are now having an okay to work from home, they're going to figure out at some point in time, they're going to need more space. Right. Does that mean, well, how does that 
change the multifamily playing field or does it? Yeah, so there's a lot of questions in there. So yeah, yeah. being remote. I important. have to get them out or otherwise I'm going to forget them. Do you see me no, typing no, just so fearlessly over here? I was like, I, I want to hear what he's saying, but I want to get this yeah, done. Anyway. <laughs> I'm glad we were born a remote company, right? Again, I came yeah. from the world. We've I set us up that way. We know how to operate leading me. That's worked out well. Yeah. Now to your point, I think, yes, some companies might want to, you know, they'll let employees work from home. But I think also some companies are looking to look for more space because they're going to need more space per employee, right? They're trying to keep more distance than they were beforehand. Oh, right? I haven't thought about that. Yeah, that's one school of thought. And again, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball. That's just kind of what I've been, people have talking, I'm like, that makes a good point. Yeah. I think in general, yeah, I mean, we're going to see some pullback in commercial, you know, office buildings. But here in Houston, I'm actually very interested in it because Houston also had the one-two punch between COVID and oil, right? Mm. I actually think, yeah. I can buy an office building at a true cap where I'm not a big REIT and I need to show that my average lease for the past two leases was, you know, two bucks a square foot. I just need to maximize cash flow and I can sure. drop my prices and really fill it up. That's attractive. Yeah. So, you know, I think make lemons, lemonade from lemons, right? Is kind of the, the thought process there. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, yeah, I just don't know, you know, but uh, realistically, I, I'm hoping to get into an office building in the next 12 months. Yeah, we'll see. What you said, true cap. What do you mean by true cap? You you see a tendency for people and brokers to kind of price a building, saying, "Look, if you fill this thing up, it'd be this much." Oh, yeah. Here's what I'm going to value it. Versus if a building, you know, because let's just go in the extremes. A building that is zero percent occupancy is arguably worth zero dollars, right? Right. Because you know, there's zero cash flow. If you think about the cap rate equation, now it'll never sell for zero dollars, right? So there's that. You know, how yeah. much are they going to give it? credit if they sell it, you know, so, right. but sometimes you'll see people say, look, we've gotten it's 60% occupied. The leases are all up this much. Therefore, if you did the work to fill it up, you can make this much. And they're like, look, let me meet you halfway and say it's 80% of potential. Right. So. And what do you think about the remote workforce changing the space of, of multifamily? Do you yeah. think with, with COVID-19 people being confined into their apartments has now pushed, you know, I see these reports, coming out and I guess I should look at who's writing the reports and what kind of agenda they're pushing, but are they writing these reports to say, you know, or the, some of these reports are saying that uh, multifamily, I'm being dramatic here. Multifamily's dead. It's not what they're saying, but they're saying a lot of folks are now focusing on getting out to suburbia now that they want to have the space and whatnot. And they're going to be able to work from remotely from home. Does it look like that? Do you think there's going to be a big exit from that? Or do you think there's going to be a lot more new builds that are going to have places for people to work uh, inside their apartments? So the question is, if people need space, does it mean their own houses? I mean, we've actually seen an uptick in leases, and I don't quite understand it. And my conclusions <laughs> from different you know things I've spoken on and listened to people is it's either people that have been stuck at home together fighting and they want their own place, right? Like couples, you know, you heard about the divorce. Rate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one example. Or it's the son that was living with the parents, but now that mm. like, the son, you know, he, he doesn't want to get his parents sick or he's working from home and needs space. He goes off and gets a lease. So it might be a forcing function for people to go off and go get a, they're going from being a bigger household to being a smaller household, but it doesn't necessarily mean to me they're going from multifamily to just houses. Right. Gotcha. So some, some people will, but I think it trickles across the board, right? So the couple that are two and one kid, maybe they want to go to house and they can have one extra bedroom, right? 
the, the son that was living with the parents, well, maybe he's going to go off and, or she's, you know, the daughter's going to go off and have her own place. You know what I mean? Have yeah. her own place. So I think it trickles through. And so that's kind of my thought. I mean, we've seen surprisingly good leasing lately. So it's a good theory, man. I like, I like your uh, take on it too. I like how you, no wonder Microsoft wanted you. <laughs> how, how hard did they, uh, they fight to keep you? Or it was like, look guys, I'm done. It's, I want to leave all good. Yeah. Oh, they, my manager knew like it wasn't a surprise, right? I think he said, "Okay, I'm not surprised." They knew I didn't. Yeah. Know. So, you know, did they know that you were investing? He's occasionally said, "Hey, do you know anyone that maybe want to come work at Microsoft?" They alluded to me, but you know, I don't say that. So, did they know that you were you were investing while you were working there? Right? No, I got into real estate after Microsoft. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't you. know anything I about. It. I didn't even buy it. my my first real estate purchase in my life was a fourplex that's like a mile down the office. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish I had bought some sort of real estate in Seattle whenever I lived there. But do you still have it? Do you still have this fourplex? Purchased. What's that? Yeah. Uh, no, I sold it this past October. Nice, nice. I've slowly been selling off any property, any of my rentals that give me any headache. I just sell it. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of my name. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I did that too this last year. So, uh, we've gotten, we only have, um, uh, we only have one property that's not in multifamily out of our 328 units. We've only got one that's a single family home. The only reason I still have it is because I bought it as a tax deed and, um, it's got title issues that should be cleared up here in a couple of months. Once they do, it's it's going on the market. Yeah, that's so. kind of my thing. Like one of them, like I've had like a tenant. She's been there for three, four years, never missed a payment. I'll hold yeah. on to that property as long as she wants to hold on to it. She leaves, then I'll kind of decide. Like, yeah. oh, it's property sellable as is. If I have to do repairs on it, I might just repair it and sell it. So, gotcha. Time is better spent cool. on kind of you know scaling out. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ferris, we have spent that seemed like the fastest thirty minutes uh, of my entire life. That was pretty freaking incredible, man. Um, I know you've had a long day, and I'll be respectful of your time. I have enjoyed uh, hearing you oh, talk about you. this and your perspective of everything, and enjoying the beach view that you have. And uh, just best way, I know you're going to Galveston's uh, weekend. That's a lovely beach. Look at that; it's great, right? That is. That is. That's nice. That's nice. I don't think that's Galveston. Though. No, it's not Galveston. <laughs> I'm very happy Galveston was that nice. Yeah. Well, if if that were the case, then you wouldn't know about Destin. Right? No, that's true. Yeah, Destin's one of the first beach vacations I remember as a kid. So nice, nice. Well, look, man, you're over this way. Let uh, let me buy you a beer at least. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, catch up when next time I'm out there for sure. That sounds good. That sounds good. So, uh, before we wrap up, let people know where they can find out more about you and uh, Disrupt Equity. Yeah, I mean, you can reach out to me. Go to www.disruptequity.com or send me an email, Ferris, F-E-R-A-S, at disruptequity.com or add me on LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm all over, so I'll make, to I will make links to all that in the show notes. By the way, that might be your tech, your propeller head was spinning when you said dub, 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 because that was probably the fastest I've ever heard anybody say that before. <laughs> 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 that was good, man. Funny, remember was, as a Microsoft, I worked on the web platforms. So I know. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it, it, there's a reason, right? There's, uh, you've got a lot of practice on it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it's good stuff. Ferris, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, man. I look forward to catching up with you soon. Um, Likewise, Jay. Thank you for having me. Definitely appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a great day, buddy. You too, man.